Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. Many Brother Grant and Diana once again for guiding us in worship. Got our piano tuned a few weeks ago, and I can't say that I hear the difference, but I know that she does. And such a blessing as well to have so many guests and family visiting, and certainly there's nothing like the joy that comes with the baptism. The great Scottish Presbyterian, Samuel Rutherford, he wrote, There is much in our Lord's pantry that will satisfy his children and much wine in his cellar that will quench all their thirst. Hunger for him until he fills you. He is pleased with the persistence of hungry souls. And if he delays, do not go away, but fall a swoon at his feet. Every day we must see some new thing in Christ. His love has neither brim nor bottom. And our presence here today and his keeping power in our lives and God adding to the church daily is evidence that his love has indeed neither brim nor bottom. Amen. Well, before we dive into our text this morning, many have spoken to me this week. Um, they've been watching Congress take votes and on certain legislation. We also saw that Pastor Coates in Canada was denied bail and is now being kept in solitary confinement until his trial in May. I know that many are concerned about what they see happening at a government level. The breakneck speed at which society seems to be shifting and the frontal assault that seems to be on the horizon for the church. Well, some who are lovers of history here this morning may have come across the name Gaius Cornelius Tacitus. And Tacitus is considered by many to be the preeminent scholar of Roman history. He was not only a historian, but he was also a politician. And he lived during the time of the early church in Rome. So he would have actually walked next to the people that Paul wrote his Roman epistle to. And his writings are invaluable. They're invaluable because they give us an outside perspective on what was happening during the early church, a lot like Josephus. And of course, we have our recordings of this time in church as from church historians about how they saw the outside world. But how did the secular world see these times in history? Well, one of the most significant events during this course of time was the great fire that destroyed 10 out of the 14 quarters of Rome in AD 64. As we start to, as word started to spread that Nero had actually set these fires, he looked for an easy scapegoat. Now, at first they considered the blaming the Jews who lived on the eastern side of the Circus Maximus where the fire actually started, but they realized that their numbers were too many. Well, guess who lived in and amongst the Jews in that area as well? This new sect known as Christians or Christians, as they called them. They were an easy target for Nero. And it was very, it was very believable for many Romans. See, as Rome was the center of all pagan idolatry, every form of sin, the Christians there believed that Rome would be destroyed during Christ's return. So seeing Rome burn, seeing the great Babylon in ashes, many of them publicly rejoiced, believing that Christ was coming back for his church. Well, being a small minority group who's publicly rejoicing that most of Rome just burned down made them an irresistible target. But when we read the verbatim accounts by Tacitus of the horrendous persecution that follows, it gives us a picture into 2021 and forward. Listen to Tacitus' account surrounding the great fire. Quote, But all human efforts, all the lavish gifts of the emperor and the propitiation of the gods did not banish the sinister belief that the fire was the result of an order. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. 
Christus, talking about Jesus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, I smiled at that, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. And accordingly, an arrest, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted. Listen to this, saints. Not so much for the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered by the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished or were nailed to crosses or were doomed to the flames and burned to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired, end quote. Well, as we're studying First and Second Peter in adult Sunday school that deals with persecution, as your pastor keeps beating this drum, let us be mindful of the time, saints. The church in America is going to suffer hardship in the coming years. The likes, even if you're 80 years old, you've not seen. And that suffering will not be noble. There will be no righteous stand for Jesus because they will not come after you for serving Jesus. They'll come after you because you're a fundamentalist. Because you're a crazy zealot who does not know the true Jesus of tolerance and love. There's nothing noble about what's coming. Many will be isolated and put out from society if you hold to the orthodox teaching of Scripture. Slowly being closed out and canceled by the world's system through various means. Not because you're a supposed lover of Christ, but because, as Tacitus says, you're a hater. You are a hater of mankind and of the greater good. You claim a God that is higher than Caesar and you will not bow to the mob. I won't point them out, but we have visitors here today that nearly lost their business because they refuse to bow to the LGBTQ lobby. They will be called haters of mankind who do not know the true way of Jesus. But we do not wait for the knock at the door, saints, or for chains on the doors of our church to prepare our hearts and our minds for a changing world that's being given over in spectacular fashion. Now, if this sounds a bit far-fetched to you or maybe dramatic, please consider history and know that there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new. More Christians have been killed in the 21st century than all previous centuries combined. And the pace is certainly quickening. So we must gird up the loins of our mind. Famed Dutch theologian Herman Bavink, he wrote in 1913, quote, if we understand Christianity's warrant and maintain a desire to preserve her essence, then we can do nothing else but take a resolute position against the systems of the day and the worldviews of its own invention and fashioning. There can be no question of mediation. There can be no thought of reconciliation. The times are too grave to flirt with the spirit of the age. The deep, sharp contrast standing between the Christian faith and the modern person must provide us with the insights that picking portions of each is not possible and that deciding between alternatives is a duty. However lovely peace would be, the conflict is upon us. And indeed it is. And that was in 1913. So what then, saints? What then? Be faithful in your reading. Be faithful in your prayer time. Be faithful of being in the house of the Lord, spending time in worship. These are the simple, unbreakable legs that we stand on, and they will be ever so necessary. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, it's hard to believe that we'll be passing halfway through chapter three on our journey through Mark. 
After finishing our two-part series, Saving the Sabbath, we watched last week as Jesus, Jesus retreated from the five ever-escalating confrontations with the Pharisees to retreating into the open air, on to the shores of the Sea of Galilee where tens of thousands would come and Jesus would heal many Word was now fully out, and the people came from the redneck Jews of Galilee to the fancy-pants Jews of Jerusalem. We had the half-breed Gentiles and Jews from Idumea to the pure Gentiles in Tyre and Sidon. Mark is showing us every nation, tribe, and tongue are leaving their homes, and they're coming to Jesus. All stripes. And as we titled our message last week, these tens of thousands coming to Jesus was a wonderful tragedy. It was a wonderful tragedy. Many, many came, but most came not for the message, but for healing. Most would press in close enough to touch the king of kings. They would even grasp his garment, yet they would remain unconverted in their hearts. What a tragedy to get that close and miss the Christ. Well, one of the most interesting literary aspects of Mark is kind of his short, no frills, almost jerky style of writing. And reading Mark is a lot like anyone who's driven a manual transmission. You're rolling down the freeway in sixth gear and all of a sudden you, you downshift too far into third. You kind of get thrown into the front of your seat. That's exactly what we have here today. We're stepping into Jesus going from the throng of 10,000 to immediately retreating from there, taking a very select few, a very important few with him. Let's begin with our text. Mark 3, 13 through 19. Mark 3, 13 through 19. And he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted. And they came to him and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles to be with him and to send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. And he appointed the 12 Simon to whom he gave the name Peter. And James, the son of Zebedee and John, the brother of James to then to them he gave the name Bonerges, which means son of thunder, sons of thunder. And Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simeon, Simon, the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Let's pray. Most merciful heavenly father, we you have done all things well. We come with humility to this text as we watch the appointment of those that you would build your church upon. Help us to see your goodness and your sovereignty in this account that we might grow thereby. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Well, what we have before us this morning is a remarkable section of scripture. While chapters two and three show thousands pressing in to Jesus, even a great deal following Jesus. Also, as a teacher or as a guru, it was time for Jesus to pick his own. It was time for him to pick his inner circle for purposes that we will cover here shortly. But our scene begins in dramatic in a dramatic shift from the crowded scene of last Sunday, beginning at verse 13, Mark 3, verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and he summoned those whom he himself wanted and they came to him. Well, first note the location. Note the location. Mark says it's a mountain. Well, this is probably the western hills on the Sea of Galilee. And if you look at them from the sea, they do indeed look like mountains. But this is more than a geography or a topography lesson for us. Mountains carry great significance 
in Mark's gospel. They're used as sites of revelation or a significant event or a turning point in Jesus' ministry. So put simply, if Jesus is going up on a mountain in Mark, take note because something's about to happen. Something's about to happen. And indeed, something is about to happen. So we see first an action. We see an action and a response here. Second part of verse 13. First, the action. And Jesus summoned those whom he himself wanted. Well, any reformed preacher worth his salt wants to stop and make camp right there, don't we? But the English betrays us a little bit here, though with the emphatic sense, the emphatic sense of this calling. The English translates those whom he himself wanted. But a better sense of this word is those whom he willed. Those whom he willed. To say that we wanted something or desired something is a different word. There's a will of God. If Jesus wanted something, if he wanted something, they would be doing Jesus a favor by responding to that. He would be in their debt. No, it is his will that would call these men. And we know that Jesus called to them. His election of them did not merely precede their response in faith. It was decreed from the foundation of the world, Paul tells the Ephesians. He is summoning those whom he himself wanted. Jesus does the willing and the calling. Jesus is calling those whom he has chosen, those that he desires. But we have to ask, why these men? Why these 12? I have no idea. Why Abel and not Cain? Why Israel and not Egypt? Why Jacob and not Esau? In this case, why Peter and not Judas? The psalmist tells us our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. That's what it means to be God. Not in a haphazard or a capricious way, not in an act of cosmic randomness, just the opposite. Paul writes in Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Why? Why would God do that? Well, he did it here that we might be holy and blameless before him. He did it according to the purpose of his will. Yeah, okay, but why me from the foundation of the world? Why these 12? He did it to the praise of his glorious grace, meaning he did it for his own glory. He did it for his own glory. These 12 men are up on this mountain for his glory. His election of them from the foundation of the world was to the praise of his glorious grace. It bothers many people that God has a sovereign prerogative in choosing those whom he will to salvation, or that he, he would choose whom he desires for his disciples. It's devastating to their pride that we are merely beggars that received a gift, that our lifeless body lay on the floor of the ocean until Christ breathed life into us. We want some of the credit for our salvation, don't we? We really want that. One Puritan wrote, quote, Oh God, it is amazing that men can talk so much about man's creaturely power and goodness, when if thou didst not hold us back at every moment, we should be devils incarnate. End quote. These disciples would never be able to look over their calling and the life that they would lead 
and be able to attribute a single drop of their goodness or to an an independent decision to follow Jesus. These disciples made no application for this appointment, for they had nothing to offer or bring in the first place. And neither do we. Neither do we. Many have a pro- many who have a problem with this doctrine that's it's spelled out very clearly in every book of Scripture, whether explicitly or implicitly, they often do so because we fail to grasp the depths of our personal sin, how very fallen we are. Our sin is not the blackest of black to them, but it's a pale gray. It's a pale gray. But beloved, if we merely think that we're broken, if we think we're merely broken and not dead, then that just means we need to be fixed up, not made alive again. If our heart just needs some polishing, then we don't actually need a new heart. If we grasp the truth of our inner depravity, the cavities of our heart, if we submit our pride to that truth, we're only left with sovereign election. God's choosing from the foundation of the world is the only solution. And saints, that's good news. That's really good news because that means it's all of him. It's all of him. If he began a good work in you, he will complete it. There's nothing good in these disciples that they should desire to come to Christ. But he first called them. And we should rejoice in that. If God is not sovereign, he ceases to be God. Yet so many ascribe his attribute of sovereignty to themselves, believing that they mustered up within themselves some longing for Christ. It's folly. If we've seen our hearts rightly, if you have been trusting in your free will to save you, or that it was your free will that you came to him by. Believe the clear words in Scripture. God is God. God is God. And yet in verse 13, we have a beautiful picture, not only of God's sovereignty to first call, but in man's responsibility. Enabled by God to come through his irresistible grace to come. Verse thir- first part of verse 13, and Jesus summoned those whom he himself wanted. And the second part, and they came to him. When the master calls, you come. We have a responsibility to come. God is sovereign and man is responsible. Both are equally true with God getting the full glory for both. Well, moving on in our text, we see the three reasons God has called these men to himself. Verses 14 and 15, I'll read them as one. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles to be with him and to send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. Well, the first question we need to ask here is why the number 12? Why the number 12? And we must be careful. We got to be careful when we're reading scripture about hunting for symbolism or using allegory. But this number has a clear application in scripture. We see represented in these 12 men, 12 who would rule over each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus says to his disciples, Matthew 19, verse 28, Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So the number clearly matters, right? So much so that when a disciple was lost with Judas, what? It was imperative that he be replaced. So while I promised last week that we would not see the Pharisees for at least 14 verses, we get a little break from their constant attack in a way, we could still feel their anger with us in them appointing the 12. You see, in all spiritual and religious ways, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and even in a political sense, the Herodians were all the leaders of Israel. They sat high and decreed the rules and orders 
over the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus' appointment of these 12 was an unmistakable rebuke to their complete disqualification of this role. I know my kids love watching The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I'm reminded of the scene where the white witch realizes that there were four children that came to Narnia. Four to fulfill the prophecy of Care Paravel. Four to sit on the throne and break the curse. The number meant something. The number was everything. This number 12 would not have been lost on the religious elite of Israel. It is with a purpose. Back to our text, verse 14. Some translations say that he appointed 12. But the Greek says he made 12. The distinction matters. To appoint something means to choose from something that is already there and to raise it up to a new status. But to make something means to bring it into existence. If we look at the verb that Mark uses here, epoiosin, this is the same verb used in Genesis 1.1. God made the heavens and the earth. So the English betrays us here. Jesus did not appoint these 12. He made them. God did not appoint or select the heavens and the earth in Genesis. He made them. Epoiosin. See the depth of distinction there? That's powerful. What three reasons? Back to our text, verse 14. Does Mark give us for Jesus calling these men? The first applies to all that Jesus calls to himself. He appointed, called, and named them. Why? To be with him. That's beautiful, isn't it? To be with him. Come and learn from me. I'm going to pour my life into you. I'm going to impart my life and myself to you. I'm going to intimately invest in you because you are going to be the ones to take this gospel forth and eventually give your lives in the pursuit. So we see that when God saves someone, he does not leave them on their own, does he? He places them in families, like the disciples. He places them in the care and company of the other ecclesia, those who have been called out. So Jesus calls them first, what? To be with him. To be with him. Remember Acts 4.13, they took note that these men had been with Jesus. That's the secret sauce, isn't it? These men had been with Jesus. Second reason given in verse 14 is to send them out to preach. Well, recall last week we talked about God's chosen mean to disseminate the gospel. It would not be through signs and miracles for us. It would not be through tremendous displays of the miraculous. It's through preaching. The oddest vessel I personally could think of. But Jesus has put the message of the gospel and the power of the gospel into the preached word, wielded by the Holy Spirit to bring about the knowledge of sin and to turn his people to Christ. So he will send them out to preach. That's God's method. That's his method. Paul told the Romans that without preaching, they won't hear the word. They won't hurt. They won't hear it. Third reason Jesus is commissioned. He has made his apostles. Verse 15. Mark 3, verse 15, and to have authority to cast out the demons. Well, if you remember back a few months ago, I believe it was the demon in the synagogue in Capernaum. We talked about this change, right? We talked about this supernatural stirring that was going on. Recall that in all of the Old Testament, we only have two mentions of demonic activity, only two. And now we get to the New Testament and they're around every corner, aren't they? Well, what changed? What happened? Jesus happened. Jesus happened. His presence and his coming rattled the cages and it shook the sediment and what rose up was not pretty. 
Jesus here gives his disciples the authority to cast out demons. And until that, until this point, the sole power in this realm was the purview of Jesus alone. But on this mountain, Jesus deputizes these 12 men to carry a message. To carry a message. And any herald, any representative of a king carries an authenticator with them. A letter, a ring, a seal. Something to tell the world that I speak on behalf of the king. Listen. The everyday average Jew in this time believed that the subduing of demons would be a primary characteristic in the Messianic age to watch for. So to see demons being subjected to them, to see them cast out, would yell in the common man's tongue, Messiah is here. Messiah is here. Nicodemus told Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Paul told the Corinthians, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. That is the reason for this deputization to cast out demons like miracles, like signs and wonders. It was given to confirm and to authenticate the message that Messiah is here. The writer of Hebrews pronounces it was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So what does that mean for Harrison Hills 2021 in regard to the demonic? Should you be performing exorcisms, for example, if you're confronted with what you perceive to be demonic activity, what are we called to do in Lanesville 2021? Well, after the Gospels in the book of Acts or the Acts of the Apostles, right? In perfect harmony with what Scripture says is the reason for casting out demons to confirm the message they were bringing, right? We see a marked shift in the New Testament after this time. And as we examine what we'll call the teaching epistles, mainly Romans through Jude, right? Romans through Jude. This is where Christians are instructed intimately. We're instructed intimately on all manner of our Christian walk and life we do see references to demonic activity in that it exists, but nowhere are we told, instructed, or commanded to engage with them or to cast them out. Nowhere are believers exhorted to bind Satan as we see in some circles. Paul does tell us in Ephesians to put on the armor, to stand against them, not to cast them out, but to stand against them. We're told to resist the devil in James and to be careful of him in First Peter and not give him room in our lives. However, we are not told how to cast out Satan or his demons out of others or that we should even consider doing so. Those who dabble in these things are often covered by God's grace and his protection, not knowing what they do. Think of the sons of Sceva in the book of Acts. We now have the complete word in our hands. That is the weapons of our warfare. Expose those around you to the truth contained in this word and let the word work mightily. And let God handle the demonic. We seek shelter under the wing of the Almighty. This is the pattern given to us after the Gospels in the New Testament. Well, moving on in our text, we get this first complete introduction to this remarkable group. This remarkable group. Before we dive into the specifics, let's observe a few things. First is their order. 
We see the names of the disciples recorded in four different places in Scripture. Three of the Gospels and once in Acts. And we'll notice a pattern in all of these. In all places, the names for the disciples are in three different groupings. All right. In every account, the order sometimes changes, but they still stay within that grouping. The order for this list is written based upon their intimacy with Christ. And this is why we always see Simon Peter listed first. And of course, Judas Iscariot listed last. But make no mistake, this is a motley crew. This is a motley bunch. Consider the makeup of these guys and even more so the compatibility of these guys as we go through. Beginning with verse 16. Mark 3, verse 16. And he appointed the twelve... Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. Well, we have spoken extensively on Peter, which means rock. And in fact, we know that the gospel of Mark is often referred to as Peter's gospel because Mark used the sermons that Peter preached, remember, in Rome for his basis for writing this gospel. We see that Peter was always the head spokesman for the 11. Who else? Verse 17. And James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to them he gave the name Bonerges. Yes, I had to look up how to pronounce that correctly. Which means sons of thunder. Now, sons of thunder sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? Like an awesome men's Bible study name, right? Sons of thunder, yeah. No, no. The Arabic word for thunder here is rojez. It means agitation or anger. It says that Jesus gave them this name, sons of anger, sons of agitation. Thanks a lot, right? In a bout of irony, Peter's nickname, the rock, Jesus was showing him that what he wanted Peter to become. But for James and John, he nicknamed them on what they needed to leave behind. Continuing with our group, verse 18 and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot. Well, Andrew would be the last member of the first group that we talked about, making Philip somewhat of the spokesman of the second group, which included Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas. Now, Bartholomew was there because of the influence of Philip. That's why they're together. And you'll recognize him much more by his first name, Nathaniel. Recall Jesus upon seeing Nathanael, he said what? Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. That was Bartholomew. Matthew, of course, we did a deep dive about a month ago on the calling of Matthew, didn't we? It was wonderful. Sitting in his tax booth, you can listen to the message titled Jesus, Friend of Sinners, Dining with the Dregs to get an in-depth look at Matthew's incredible road to becoming a disciple. We have James, the son of Alphaeus. He heads up the final group. We don't know a lot about him, honestly. If you hear the name or the term James the Lesser, that's who we're speaking of here. James, the son of Alphaeus, is James the Lesser. Easy to get the Jameses confused in in the Bible. Thaddeus, we really know little about him as well. But Simon the Zealot, oh, we know something about Simon the Zealot, and we can glean much about him by the adjective in his name. These guys were revolutionaries. They lived for one thing, hating Romans and seeking to overthrow them. If a Roman soldier might be caught alone with these guys, they were not coming out alive. And what makes this remarkable as we consider the makeup of this motley bunch, we have someone like Simon the Zealot with someone like Matthew. 
seen as a traitor to his people, serving the Romans to oppressively collect taxes to fund that oppression. In any other circumstance, it is someone like Simon the Zealot that outside of that circle would have taken Matthew's life without hesitation. For Matthew to have encountered Simon outside of Christ would have been almost certain death or harm. Yet here they are. Here they are. There are no clones. There's no carbon copies in this group of men. And that's purposefully so. Finally, verse 19. Verse 19. And Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. On any list, as we said, Judas is always listed last. There are so many points of truth that we can glean from the life of Judas, from the role he played in our Lord's death to the sovereignty of God in choosing Judas. Remember verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and he summoned those whom he himself wanted. Jesus wanted Judas. Jesus made Judas. He would be instrumental in carrying out the will of God in saving his people from their sins. And he had everybody fooled, everybody but Jesus. Even as Jesus shared the most intimate of times with his 12, pouring himself into them, he knew what Judas would do when he stooped to wash the dirt and the dust off of his feet. He knew. He knew what he would do. And we don't have time to cover the, the wide breadth that accompanies Judas' selection as a, as a disciple and his subsequent betrayal, but I want us to take this away. Judas is forever memorialized. He is described and he is judged by what he did that night. He's not just Judas. He was always and always will be Judas who betrayed him. He is defined and judged by what he's done. And so it will be for all those who are outside of Christ. The Bible says in Hebrews that it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. There is a day of judgment, and it is sure as the air you're breathing. Like Judas, those who are outside of Christ will be judged based upon what they've done on their works, and the sentence will be handed down based on what they have done, and that sentence will be death. If you're outside of Christ, if you have never repented and put your faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation and went on to witness the changed life that must accompany that confession, you will forever be defined by what you've done. Your darkest deed will be your crown for eternity. So it was, and it is for Judas. Judas sits in hell today, and he's only just begun. Yet what of the other 11? What of the other 11? When Jesus met Peter, he was not a rock. He was not a rock. But this man had been with Jesus. When John was called by Jesus, he was called a son of anger, a son of agitation. By the time his journey was complete, he would be known as the apostle of love. These men had been with Jesus. Judas will forever be defined by what he's done and will, as will all who are outside of Christ. The other 11 and all who are in Christ today will not be judged by what they've done. They will be judged on the perfect merit on the sinless, spotless sacrifice of Christ, given to pay their debt of sin, instead of wearing a crown for our darkest deeds that will be worn for eternity, we will obtain the crown of life, a crown of righteousness. 
the beloved J.I. Packer, he wrote, to know that from eternity, my maker, foreseeing my sin, foreloved me and resolved to save me, though it would be at the cost of Calvary. To know that the divine son was appointed from eternity to be my savior and that in love he became man for me and died for me and now lives to intercede for me and will one day come in person to take me home. To know that the Lord who loved me and gave himself for me and who came and preached peace to me through his messengers has by his spirit raised me from spiritual death to life-giving union and communion with himself and has promised to hold me fast and never let me go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that before the foundation of the world, you did according to your good pleasure. Lord, we thank you for the example of these 12. Lord, a group of people that outside of you would have nothing in common. But these men were with Jesus. We thank you for that. Lord, let our lives this week be reflected of those who will look at us and say, indeed, those people have been with Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.